Hey there, welcome to Night School. Doing a marathon here of episodes. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that idea of water finding its own level, which it happens socially, but in particular with class. And growing up in a middle class environment, you know, I would say my hometown of Kirkland, it was a middle class town for generations. My family went back there generations. And then over time, it became increasingly upper middle class. It became wealthier and wealthier. And, uh, you know, as a result, there's obviously small social differences. But the interesting thing about a middle class environment is, as I've said before, middle, the middle class, they're chameleons. And the disappearance of the middle class, yeah, that does come from political and financial decisions going on at the highest levels. Like there is a force that is pushing the middle class out of existence. But as I've said before, the middle class also wills itself out of existence because middle class people in my experience, and these are the people that I have the most experience with, middle class people often either try to appear wealthier than they are, they try to appear as if they're from a higher class than they're actually from, or they do the opposite and try to appear poorer as if they're from a lower class. And in both cases, they are looking for credibility of some kind. You know, I would say wanting to seem wealthier, wanting to seem as if you are part of a higher element in society than you're actually from. I mean, that kind of speaks for itself because that's where power is. That's where respectability is. But the lower class one is interesting because I don't know if that's always been the case. I don't know if that's a a, a relatively modern development, but you can see where there's a narrative in pop culture, which is that the streets... The farms, the streets and the farms give you more credibility. Like if you come from a a poor background, whether it's rustic or urban, if you come from a poor background, that gives you some credibility. You're the salt of the earth. And in particular, if you want to come across, if you you want to, you see it in particular with artists. You know, artists tend to emphasize the struggle. And sometimes they are struggling, but many times they've put themselves in that position. They've willed it into existence. Uh, But I don't know if that's a relatively modern development, the idea of people from a, a middle class or upper middle class. It's not just the middle class, but you tend to see people in the range of middle class trying to appear as if they're from a rougher background than they're from. I mean, the phenomenon of wiggers that I've explored in depth is proof enough of this. Like I think I mentioned a little while back how this older wigger that I grew up with died some years back. And after he died, I found out that he was from like a, a nuclear home. Like he was from a, a a nuclear family with like a happy... And I mean, you never know what goes on behind closed doors, but it was like it had the his family had the appearance of just like a nice well put together respectable family and i never knew that i assume because he was such a ruthless wigger that he was probably from a single parent household you know probably had it pretty rough probably a, a latchkey kid as they say probably unsupervised but in reality his parents were married he had sisters he had, he had this happy family and yet he was he he acted like this hoodlum at school. He fought. 
He was a thug. And so the wigger phenomenon, the, the punk phenomenon as well, I see those things as two sides of the same coin. The punk phenomenon and the wigger phenomenon, where someone is basically trying to appear more street than they really are. And that's an interesting thing, too, being interested in the mafia so much. You know, you come across these guys who will change their names. Like, there are, there are some authors and some people who write about the subject online who use fake Italian names and try to give the appearance that they are street guys. One of these guys is Jewish. He's, he's a random, like, Jewish cosmopolitan type. I don't know about cosmopolitan. I'm just throwing that in there. But he, he uses a fake Italian last name to write about the mafia because he must think it gives him some kind of credibility. Oh, he's got an Italian last name. He must know what he's talking about, huh? But that's even a form of that. You know, it's like trying to give yourself this credibility. So it's almost like the middle class identifies with the upper class or tries to mimic the upper class to gain respectability, but then they mimic the lower classes to try to gain credibility. I worked for everything. I worked for everything I have. Because it's not even just the arts. It's that mentality, too. I've known people who come from wealth who try to say that they worked for their wealth. And even if they did, it's like they came from an advantaged position. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's one of the... That's one of the reasons why people even do this is because part of the narrative has been that there is something wrong with having advantages. There's something wrong with having privileges. And then we also, we've turned those into mythological concepts. We've turned those into supernatural concepts. You know, people think that these handshakes are going on behind closed doors. Oh, the white men, when the doors are closed, the white men shake hands and make deals. Some of them do. I've never been included in that. But anyway, we don't we don't need to go into that direction again or at all. Although we'll we'll probably hit somewhere close by the end of this episode, but anyway, just talking about like water finding its own level. Something I learned growing up is there are very practical reasons for that. Like I had a friend who he wasn't really a close friend. I played sports with him. I went to birthday parties. You know, it's one of those sort of people. He's a kid in the community. Sometimes you go to his birthday party. Sometimes you're on his sports team. But he was just known. Everybody knew him as the rich kid. And it it wasn't old money. You know, his dad was a great guy. He was a self-made man. His dad was a self-made man. He ran a a printing company. And he was very generous. His dad spread his wealth around. He would sponsor events. I knew his dad pretty well. And uh, he, he was just a, an all-around good guy. But the son did have, you know, the son wasn't very aware of how unique his position was in our community. And I don't even know what the reality was. I don't even know what the financial, the financial situation even was with him. You know, it, it was just, it was well known. You could, you could, you knew that his family had money. They didn't live in mansions. Like really the only significant, uh, really the only significant evidence that they were wealthy was his dad had a den in his house and the den was filled with valuable sports memorabilia. It was like a little museum. There'd be like behind glass in these glass frames, there would be a signed, I don't know, OJ Simpson Jersey. I don't, I don't know which players they were. But his dad had this sports memorabilia collection, and you typically didn't see that. You typically didn't go over to a kid's house, and his dad's den is filled with valuable signed sports memorabilia. And there was a lot of it. 
But there were just little things like that. But you could just tell, like, this kid, it wasn't that he was even entitled. You could just tell he wasn't really aware that his situation contrasted with other people's. And I think we all run that risk. You know, I run that risk. You know, I, I'm i not from some, you know, my background, it's like basically my background is like my dad worked hard and he manages money well. He doesn't spend money frivolously. So that gave my family some financial security. We definitely weren't the rich family, but I would say that we were secure. And, uh, but even I, even being in that position, even even my position, which I think gave me all kinds of advantages that other people wouldn't have. Those advantages aren't necessarily material either. It's not like there were actual material opportunities, but just a general, you know, freedom. I could be interested in the things I wanted to be interested in, that kind of thing. Like like the way I always put it is I was spoiled. My mom spoiled me. Not spoiled rotten. I think there's a difference between being spoiled and spoiled rotten. I think that my sister and I were spoiled. What that means is that when my sister and I were interested in something, my mom made sure that we had what we needed to pursue that interest. If it was creative, it meant art supplies. If it was like a toy that, you know, we played with, you know, she'd buy it for us. It was that kind of thing. You know, it wasn't anything that grandiose. But that might seem grandiose to somebody who doesn't have that. You know, I understand that. Um, but, uh, what I would say about like this kid in particular, it's like everybody knew him as the rich kid, but it almost took on a mythology of its own. Cause it's like, they weren't, you know, I think his dad maybe had a nice car, but he didn't live in a mansion. He just, he had a, he had a, a decently nice house with a view. He had a sports memorabilia collection. His mom had a normal suburban house. They, his parents were divorced, but word got around that this was the rich kid. And he didn't really do himself any favors because he was so, he lacked so much self-awareness about it. But it's not like he was bragging. He just didn't really know. It was pretty innocent. And he wasn't a bad guy. But uh, you just it's weird, though, how it took on a life of its own that he was the rich kid. And as a result, like people would st- they started stealing from him. People would steal from him. In particular, I had a friend who was really good friends with him. And this, despite being, quote-unquote, a really good friend of him, this kid and this other kid set up this systematic method of stealing from him. They figured out all these schemes to where, like, they could go over to his house and one would distract him. I mean, the, the worst story I ever heard about this was that one time they were going to this kid's house and all three of them were together and they realized that they were locked out. And so one of the other kids was like, I'll crawl in through the window and unlock it. And the kid was like, okay. And so the other kid did that. And while he was in there, before he unlocked the door, he like went through the kid's room and set aside, like he hid things that he planned to steal later. And while the other kid distracted him outside, this kid basically set aside different objects to steal. I don't even know what they were, probably video games, whatever kids would want. Because they would take things like that from him. Money. I know they took money. They found money in his room and took it. So it's like they were very systematic about this. And then they he unlocked the door and let him in. And then later, you know, eventually he found out. And he asked me about it. We, had, we were on the same football team. And after practice one day, like I wasn't his close friend. Like he and I never made plans to hang out. It was just like being on the same teams, 
birthday parties maybe. But, you know, I was enough of an acquaintance that he could talk to me. And he, he was like, hey, you know, I, it's like, I found out those two guys were stealing from me. Did you ever hear anything about it? And I thought for a second, because I was good friends with one of the thieves. I was a good friend with one of the thieves. And it always bothered me that he did that. But I, you're a kid. You don't know what to do about it. And he asked me if, if I knew about it. And I said, yeah. I said, it took me a second. I had to really think about it for a second. I said, yeah, they were stealing from you. I heard about it. And he was like, I knew it. Fuck them. And then later it got back to my, our mutual friend who was one of the thieves. And he was like, why'd you tell him? And he and I didn't talk for a while. We didn't talk for a year or two. You know, I mean, I should have told him earlier, really. But it was just when I was asked, I told the truth. But it was one of those things where because they saw him as the rich kid, like I'm getting back to this water finding its own level thing, because they saw him as the rich kid, they felt that they had a license to steal, that he didn't appreciate or need. Because there's a lot of self-justification in, in theft where it's like, oh, he doesn't need that. He already has enough. And it's like, that's not really the principle. I mean, it's almost like a commie mentality. He already has enough. Let's let's redistribute. Let's redistribute the rich kids' video games. That's kind of what it is. And I doubt those were the only kids that stole from him. I mean, I heard a story in high school. I wasn't there, but he threw a party when his dad was out of town in high school, and there was drinking and like people inviting random people he didn't know. And this guy invited like a group of thugs. And the kid went down into the, the sports memorabilia den and he caught these guys trying to steal some of it and he confronted them and they, one of them punched him in the face and he came to, the reason I know this story, and even though I wasn't there is because he came to school wearing, he had to wear a, like a patch over his eye with glasses over the patch to keep it on or so, it, it fucked him up. And it, and it was all because he confronted this kid at his party who was stealing his dad's valuable sports memorabilia. But that's the thing. It's just like his friends stealing from him. They saw him as this resource they could tap into. They thought, he's rich. We can take this. And you know what? That's an argument not to hang out with people who aren't in your class. Like, we think of class as this thing that's like, oh, you know, it's a... The nobles designed this thing to keep the keep people down and to, you know, they've created this, this social hierarchy just to oppress people. And that's true, too. None of these things are black or black and white or one dimensional. But it's like there's also a reason why people gravitate toward each other. There's a reason why romantically people gravitate toward people who are closer to their background than they are not. There's a comfort to that. And sometimes people go through experiences, you know, you're a young person, you date different types of people and you might date somebody who's lower, like from a lower class than you or an upper class. And of course, you know, in America, these aren't as strictly defined as we make them out to be. And you can, in America too, you can go from one to the other really quick, both up or down, you know, it's a two way, the elevator goes both ways. And nobody seems to want to be middle class. It's like a lot of people, I mean, my grandfather did. My grandfather got back from World War II. He had written a letter back home. Uh, it's, I, I've seen a copy of it. And he wrote it to the local newspaper. And he said, when I get back home, I'm never leaving. 
I'm never going anywhere again. And what he did is he he saw it because he was in the shit World War Two. I don't know that he saw battle, but he was in it. You know, he experienced a lot in World War Two. So did my grandma. My grandma signed up as well, which is amazing. She had to parachute. She had to do a, uh, as part of my grandma's training, she had to skydive. And she said it was the scariest thing she's ever done. And to this, to like up until her death, as far as I know, she still considered skydiving to be (laughs) like the scariest thing she had ever done. But, uh, but anyway, like my grandpa, like all he wanted to do when he got home from World War II is have a house and a job. And that's what he did and raise a family. And that's exactly what he did. And a lot of men from his generation did that. They saw these men who served in World War II. And I'm not one of these people who's like the greatest generation, man. Like everybody who served in World War II is, is a perfect person. You know, I don't even feel that way. I have a lot of respect for my grandfather, though. And I feel that you can't separate him or his generation from their experience in World War II. But anyway, he saw just a middle-class life as his goal, and that's what he achieved. And he saved his money, and he, you know, he did all right for himself, but he lived a middle-class life, a stable middle-class life, and that was directly informed by his experience in World War II. And you can see it in that letter. Because that letter that he wrote back home where he says, I'm never leaving Kirkland again. And he did. The very end of his life, he moved to Whidbey Island. But he lived in Kirkland his entire life. He never moved. He never wanted to go anywhere else. Because he had experienced something far more severe than many of us do. And like I said, I don't, I don't know that he saw battle but just being a part of that, you know, even just he told me an experience where he was on a ship going to the theater of war, the European theater. He was in France. I know that. And they he, he, they were in this completely steel ship. The ship was made out of steel and they were in the severe storm. And he said the ship was tilting from one end all the way to the other and making just this horrific screech. And it turns out he never even told my dad or uncle about that. I had to do an interview when I was a kid for school. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to interview an older relative about their experiences, like things that they remember, which was a really interesting assignment. At the time, it just kind of seemed like, well, hey, they're making us ask our grandparents silly questions. But asking your grandparents like what they remember about earlier parts of their life. Like I asked, like, I asked my grandfather, like, what's a, what's a, like a, what was a big event that happened that you remember, like a big national event? And he was like, oh, the Lindbergh, when Charles Lindbergh's kid was kidnapped. You know, there's big events like that. But anyway, he told me this story about just how terrifying it was being in this ship and just hearing the metal screech. I bet it was an incredible sound. And so just even that alone, even that alone will make you just want to live a middle-class life, not to mention what he experienced going to the actual theater of operations But anyway, he did exactly what he said, and he saw middle class as desirable. A lot of men did. A lot of families did. But, you know, because middle class has kind of become this, it's seen as this stepping stone, where it's either like where you're at on your way down or where you're at on your way up. It's also a way to, oh, if I'm middle class, I can pretend to be this or pretend to be that. You know, it's sort of, it's it's become a weird mutant class. The mutant middle class. That's what I'm going to call this episode, the mutant middle class. And it's only become more mutated. 
But anyway, uh, getting back to the idea of like water finding its own level. I mean, the kid I knew in school who was just known as the rich kid. It's like if he was a South Park character, he would be the one who's like rigidly designed to be the rich kid. You know, he's the archetype, the rich kid. But like I said, he wasn't a bad kid. He really was not a bad kid. He just wasn't completely aware of his situation. And how could he be? He was surrounded by middle-class people who were pretending to be as wealthy as he was. You know what I mean? So it's like he was surrounded by people who were going through the motions. But anyway, like inviting people to his house, like he had a friend who didn't have as much money as he did. He had multiple friends and they decided that they, it was their right to steal from him. Oh, he has more than me. He doesn't appreciate it fully. He's spoiled. Let's take stuff from him. Some kid came to his party and said, oh, this guy's dad has a bunch of expensive memorabilia. They don't need it. They're rich. I'm going to take it. Whereas if he had invited just rich kids over, they wouldn't have done that. If anything, they might have been like, oh, your, your, sports, your dad's sports memorabilia collection is uh, <laughs> pretty impressive. Uh, I'll often invite you over to my dad's collection of, uh, you know, my dad has 10 garages filled with cars. My dad collects extremely expensive, rare automobiles, and he, he owns warehouses where he stores them. You know, that's the risk you run when you hang out with other rich people, I guess, is that they might outdo you. But at least they're not going to try to steal from you. I mean, and, and I'm sure somebody could say, oh, rich kids steal too. I'm sure they do. But, but still, you can see where, like, because this kid was on a, from a higher economic group, and it was pretty obvious... People thought that they could just take things from him. And he would not have experienced that, not to the degree that he did, if he hung out with people who were from a similar background or, or you know, sim- let's just say a similar background. And there's a level of comfort, too, to that, though, as well, where it's like you're not hiding anything. Like when you're with people who are like you, you're not hiding anything. You're not, you don't need to posture. Or if you do posture, it's going to be in a different way. And I'm not, this isn't me making an argument that, oh, poor people should hang out with only poor people and rich people should hang out with only rich people. I'm not making that argument at all. I don't feel that way at all. I'm the product of kind of a combination where my mom grew up in extreme poverty. My dad grew up in a middle class home. I don't know that it would have, I mean, they got divorced, but it's like, I, I don't know that it ever would have happened if he was from the upper classes. Um, But it also helped that my mom was very literate and well-spoken. I don't think it would have worked out at all. I don't think I don't think I would be alive. I don't think I would have come into existence if my mom wasn't literate and well-spoken enough to get along in a middle-class environment because my mom's immediate relatives do not share that quality with her. And I, I say that with no disrespect for my kin. I'm just saying that some of the people in Missouri and the Midwest who she left behind cannot speak the language of the middle class. And, you know, you look at genetics where my mom's bio, my mom was the only one of my mom had, there were seven kids in my mom's family and she was the only one to, and there were three different dads and she was the only kid to have had her dad and she never met him. 
but he was a writer. I've mentioned him before. She never met him. She, she knew his mom. She knew her biological grandma, but nobody told her that was her biological grandma. This was just some woman in town in Missouri who took an interest in my mom and would meet up like my mom's maternal grandmother would take her over to her biological grandmother's house and they would have tea. This woman would give her gifts. I even found a letter from the 1970s after my sister was born, the late 70s, where this woman, my biological great-grandmother wrote this letter to my mom like asking her just for updates telling her like what people were doing like it's just very fascinating the politics of the time like because my mom was born out of wedlock and never met her biological father even though he lived in the same town but because she you couldn't acknowledge that she still had a relationship with her biological grandma and she didn't realize that was the basis of the relationship until later. She was just like, that nice lady really likes me. So it's fascinating how people got around some of the social stigma. But anyway, like my mom, and she she strongly believed this herself, that her literacy and her ability to communicate came genetically through her father because it was not in her environment. You know, she went to a little schoolhouse in Missouri the rest of her family, her brothers and sisters, God bless them, were rough people. Her mom was a rough person, very rough. Her stepdad was a wonderful guy, by all accounts, but he was very passive. He was a farmer. He was very simple. He was certainly not, nobody in that household was encouraging my mom to read. In fact, they were probably discouraging it. They didn't understand it. But yet my mom developed this pretty advanced literacy and words were always very important to her. Like I had these friends, you know, I always, I always invoke the memory of my redneck friend, but my mom used to try to correct his and his sister's speech because he had a speech impediment of some kind. I mentioned yesterday how he would say, instead of gang, he would say, he would say gain instead of bang, he would say bane, but he would, he had some really weird ones. Like we were at the beach one time when we were kids and he said crab as trab. Like if you spelled crab with a T, I have no idea how, how that comes about. Trab, T-R-A-B was how he said crab. But what made it really strange is his older sister said it too, but she got it from him because his older sister, she didn't have any, like, like he had a little bit of a learning disability and he had a speech impediment. And, uh, but his sister didn't, his sister was actually quite bright. Like they were from kind of a blue collar redneck family openly. They called themselves rednecks. And, uh, his sister though was actually quite intelligent. I mean, academically, like she, she did well in school and everything, but it was really weird that she pronounced crab as trab also. So it shows you like the fact that her little brother said it that way. Just, she just started saying trab. And I have this distinct memory of my mom sitting them down on the beach and going, say crab, crab. And I asked her about that later because I always remembered it. She wasn't mean. She was very nice, but she was very firm, like even more firm than I've ever seen her with kids. Like my mom was always the mom who was like, oh, do what you want. You know, oh, hey, kids. Like she knew we wouldn't do anything too bad. So she was pretty passive. But I remember her sitting them down and going, can you say crab? And... 
I asked her about that many years later. I was like, why did, why was that so important? And she was like, I don't, I didn't want them to go to school and humiliate themselves. Cause she's like, when I first went to school as a little kid, you know, she obviously was far, she was, she was from the environment she was from. And she said that she said things wrong and other people would make fun of her for it. And it was humiliating. They basically singled her out as lower class, uneducated. And she was like, I don't want those kids to go to school and, and be saying things wrong and to be humiliating themselves. Because she's like, it's humiliating when you can't say things right and people point it out and people make fun of you for it. And I thought that was very interesting. And then I look at some other things she did where she she volunteered at my school for a while, but she wasn't that involved in my classes or anything. Like She wasn't that involved in the school. Like I had friends where their moms were in and out of the school all day, but my mom, like she, what she did is she, she volunteered to help kids learn to read. Like she would, she did this program where certain kids who had struggle, who who had trouble reading would go out into like the, uh, I was going to say the porta potty, (laughs) the, uh, the portables and they would have moms help them understand like reading. I don't, I don't know what they did. I didn't do it. Uh, I taught myself how to read, believe it or not. There's a brag for you. I taught myself how to read because my, I, I used to try to get my sister to read me comic books and she was reading them. She's like, I don't even know how to pronounce these characters names. Thanatos, Thanos, you know, and, I, and she was like, I, I can't, I, I seriously taught myself how to read somehow by reading comic books and Nintendo power. I swear to God, I, I don't, I can't take credit for it. Somebody must have helped me. I don't know what that is. I don't know how you learn how to read. Um, but anyway, so like my mom was helping kids and, and, and here we go. I mean, like I probably learned how to read because my mom probably, she didn't sit down and force me, but it was probably just being in that environment, probably being around a mom who emphasized that. Like she wasn't one of those parents who was like, you have to read for an hour every day, but just being in an environment where that was important. You want to talk about advantages, getting away from wealth and finance, like rich kids having advantages. If you have a parent who values literacy and communication, that's a huge advantage for learning how to read. So, I mean, I'd love to take credit for it and say through some supernatural miracle, I taught myself how to read. But realistically, I was in an environment that encouraged that. But anyway, so my mom, she was helping kids how to read, but I, I still remember those kids like saying trab, trab, which is funny and hilarious to me now, but yeah, that would be humiliating. Um, but with my mom going back to like this mom tangent, you know, don't, don't threaten me with a, don't threaten me with an opportunity to talk about my beloved dead mom. Um, but, uh, anyway, she, uh, you know, being with my dad, like my dad's very literate as well. Uh, he was very academically gifted far more than I am or, you know, for that matter. But, um, I think that my mom was able to come from a much lower class because socially and intellectually she was able to exist on that level. And part of that's genetics. Like she attributes part of it to her father, her biological father, who she never met. She believes that she inherited his ability to navigate language. 
And I just find that interesting that you, you can bridge gaps, but you know, sometimes somebody will end up with a trophy wife, for example, who comes from a much lower class. And that's got to be strange. If that person can't, if that person doesn't have the language, because I don't think it's a matter of intelligence. I don't, you know, obviously, I, I should go without saying that I don't see an inability to communicate or write or read as a direct, I don't, I don't see that as a, I don't see that as being directly correlated to intelligence. As I've said over and over again on this show, I see intelligence as awareness. And sometimes that awareness manifests in the form of knowledge, certain abilities and skills. But at its most basic level, I see intelligence as awareness. So I would never equate literacy. I would never equate someone's academic ability with intelligence but you can see where, you know, sometimes they are correlated. And I don't know, I've had some experiences myself with, you know, a dating where, like I said, I was spoiled and my family never wanted for anything. But I've had a couple experiences where like I, I've gone on dates where I realized that the person I'm with came from a much higher class than I did. And not even that dramatically, but it just shows you like the difference. Like I went on some dates with a girl, wonderful person who was very aware of her background, but she came from money. And for me, like just going to a restaurant is a big deal. Like my family went to restaurants, like we could go to restaurants, you know, once in a while, you know, like there was no, we didn't have to save up to go to restaurants on a semi-regular basis. Not like we were going all the time, but it was like, it wasn't, you know, it, it was just a part of life. We can afford to go to restaurants, but we weren't going to fancy restaurants. We were, ne we never went to high end restaurants. And honestly, I don't think we felt like we belong there. And why would you spend a bunch of money on that anyway? I think it was kind of our basic attitude and it was never even discussed, but going on like a couple of dates with somebody who came from a much more affluent background. It was interesting because like I saw where like she would, she really enjoyed going out to expensive restaurants once in a while and you know what like some of the places we went she probably wouldn't even consider them that expensive and that shows you just the difference it's kind of like that kid I knew growing up who wasn't a bad kid he was a great kid he wasn't an asshole he didn't rub his family's money in anybody's face but he just he didn't really it's little things like that where like for that kid's birthday actually one year his dad took me and another teammate and his son out for a birthday dinner for his son. And it was the fanciest restaurant I ever went to. It was some restaurant in Seattle. You know, we, we lived about 15, 20 minutes from Seattle and his dad took us out to the fanciest steakhouse, maybe the fanciest steakhouse I've ever been to to this day. And he, and we got our own table. He got, he and his wife and, and the stepdaughter got their own table on the other end of the restaurant. And we were like 14 year old boys and he set up our own, he, he got reservations. He gave us our own table he sent over a bottle of sparkling cider as just kind of like a, a joke. We all bought, we all had these steaks. Like, you know, I didn't know, that's the thing too, is like, I didn't even know that steaks weren't just flat everywhere. Like going to this restaurant, like my steak came and it was like a ball. It was like the size of a baseball, completely dense. And I was like, this is new. But you can see with something like that, where it's like, that wasn't a completely rare not to make a steak pun, but that wasn't a completely rare experience 
for that family. Like he had been to that restaurant before that kid whose birthday it was like he had been to that restaurant before. Whereas for me and my friend who was actually the other kid who was there with us was the redneck friend, the trab kid. He was actually the third kid with us because we all played sports together. And I can tell you that kid never even came close to a restaurant like that. And he seemed uncomfortable. I was a little bit uncomfortable, but my redneck friend was completely uncomfortable. I could tell that he didn't want to say too much or do too much because this experience was so foreign being in this high-end steakhouse in the city, getting sent bottle, getting our own table, getting sent bottles of sparkling cider. And I mean, the fact that I even still remember that experience as something unique tells you something too, that that was not normal and isn't normal. And so like when I, w- I was going out with this girl for a little bit and like she would occasionally be like, let's go somewhere nice. And to me, that could just be anything that's not a diner. That could be any place that's clean. Like, I know what a nice, nice restaurant is, but still, like, in my world, like, if somebody says, let's go somewhere nice, you know, it's it's pretty middle of the road. And so that was just one little thing that I realized that, oh, she's used to a higher quality of experience, She's used to, and then she grew up in a country club too. You know, she grew up in that sort of environment, a country club where you go to nice restaurants and, and nice, nicer than anything I've ever been to. And I mean, that goes for most of my friends too. Like most of my friends were from similar backgrounds as me and none of us were wanting for much. But I can tell you, none of us were going to restaurants like that. None of us were country club members. So there's a relativity to this. And so it's just subtle things like that where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm not used to this. I could get used to it. Like if I married a wealthy girl, a girl from a wealthy background, I could get used to going to nice steakhouses all the time. You know, I, my middle class background, you know, I would say I'm between middle. I would say my family background is between like middle class and upper middle class. I wouldn't call us upper middle class at all, but I would say we're somewhere in between those. We're, we're, we're part of some like micro part of that spectrum. I don't know. It's probably more common than I realized, but and I don't even know. See, the thing is, I don't even know those details, but that's where I would kind of, that's, that's kind of how I would place myself is like slightly above middle class, but not quite upper middle class either. And even saying that sounds crazy to me, even just admitting that, even though it's like, I'm not, making any bold claims like, Oh, I'm rich. Hey, do you know I'm rich? Cause I would not call myself that I would not call my family that. But anyway, it, but you can see where like even just my internal dilemma about this as someone who's totally secure in my family background, as someone who's totally secure in who I am in that regard, even I have this little internal dilemma when it comes to classifying myself but but I could fit in with but the point being, whatever my family background is, I can fit in with the upper classes. I can also fit in with people. I don't think I can fit in that easily with people who are from true po- uh, poverty. I don't think that I can fit in on a just a class level with people who are from like true, true poverty. And, and I mean, I, and I don't mean that I can't be friends with them. I just mean like I can't fit in culturally with that. That doesn't mean that that's some like fixed barrier that means, oh, you can't ever associate with people, uh, you know, who grew up homeless. No, I don't mean that at all. But you're going to you're going to notice differences. Whereas like people who are lower middle class, I can I had a lot of friends who were that as well. 
You know, I had a lot of friends who I think were lower middle class. They were barely getting by, but they were getting by. And then, you know, so it's like if you're middle class, my point is if you're middle class, you can fit into many different places on the spectrum, which is why people role play that they actually are part of a different class than they are. Middle class is mutant. Middle class is malleable. You can kind of pretend to be something you're not, but you can also be comfortable in situations that you might not otherwise belong in. And that's how I felt like going to places where you get where your steak. I literally ordered a baseball steak at one restaurant that I went to with that girl. That girl. I don't mean it to sound that way. I I ordered it was called a baseball steak. And sure enough, like it's a big ball of steak. And it was amazing. It was incredible. I mean, there's a reason why people like that stuff, it turns out. It's hard for me to justify it, though. And because I didn't grow up going to places like that. There's no built-in necessity to do it. Whereas with this girl, like, you know, maybe I'm being unfair or or I'm just wrong. But I kind of got the impression that even though she was completely... She was awesome, honestly. She was awesome. But, like, I could tell, though, that, like, she needed to go and do that sometimes. I could tell that, like, she kind of had a built-in need to maybe occasionally go to a really nice restaurant, whereas I could never go to a nice restaurant again in the rest of my, for the rest of my life, and I would never even think about it. Like, I'm not a restaurant guy to begin with. I don't like going to restaurants that much to begin with, but it's like I could go the rest of my life without ever going to a fancy restaurant again, and I would never feel a loss. I would never feel a void. Whereas when you spend time, especially if you're dating somebody and you kind of get to know their rhythms and I, I, you know, this girl and I, we never really got heavily involved, but we did spend time together. And I, I just, I I could kind of tell that once in a while, and she would even kind of say as much, like, we'd be like, Oh, where do you want to go eat? Where do you want to eat? And she would be like, well, I'm kind of thinking we should go somewhere else. And what she had in mind was somewhere a little bit nicer. Not that she couldn't enjoy stuff that wasn't that nice, but you could tell that just there was sort of a capacity for that that had been built in based on her background. And, you know, I I talk so much about, like, girls I dated on here. I'm extremely self-conscious about it because the reality is I've dated very few women, but I think that makes those experiences amplified because it's so weird because I'm someone who's not very intimate with people. I keep my distance from people in general. I have close friends. I've never, somehow I've never had a lack of friends. I don't know how that, I honestly don't know how that is. Um, I'm not that popular, but somehow I've never been without friends. But I deserve some, maybe sometimes I deserve to be without friends. But anyway, uh, you know, I talk a lot about like people I've dated, but I think it's because that's so, those experiences are so unique to me. Like the idea of, intimacy with somebody like yeah you can think of intimacy probably the way you're thinking of it that's weird to me too but just the whole experience like making decisions with somebody else like even if you're just casually dating you start making decisions as a team that you wouldn't otherwise make in a friendship like even just deciding where to go get something to eat like deciding where to go get something to eat is fundamentally different even in a casual dating relationship and especially in a more committed relationship, but it's fundamentally different from deciding where to go eat with a friend of yours. Because if a friend of yours insists, if they're like, I want to go to this burrito place, 
no, no, no. I don't, I don't want to get pho. I don't want to get pho. I'm, I want a burrito. And they insist on that. Well, you can just go, okay, you go, you go get your burrito. You go get your burrito, and I'll go get my pho. Or I'll go home. And it's, it's not even a problem. It's just like, oh, there's no issue. Nothing needs to be resolved. Your friend wants this. You want that. Maybe you'll go get those things and reconvene, or you'll just part ways. It doesn't matter. Unless you have like some really sick codependent friend group, which a lot of people do. That kind of thing doesn't matter. You'll, you'll get what you want. But even just in a casual setting, it's like making decisions. Like, you, like there are politics to just deciding what and where to go eat. And then when you throw in like kind of this class difference, even if it's very subtle, that impacts that too. Because even just, because I mean, on that level too, like when I went to those fancy restaurants with that girl, like she paid. And as a guy, you know, I still haven't quite gotten around that. Because like she, well, because the thing is like she, she was making a lot more money than I was just in her own job. And then I'm guessing, I don't, I don't know that she had any of her family money available to her, but it was just one of those things where like, I, I was kind of the guest and, you know, when someone insists on going to a fancy restaurant, you're, you are probably not in a position. A lot of people aren't in a position to spend $50 on a steak and whatever else, you know, and, and a tip, you know, it's like, that's the thing. That's another reason why water kind of finds its own level is because, you know, if you're from a lower class, you can't afford to do the things that are normal to somebody else. Even if you're just middle class, you can't necessarily afford, which is why a lot of middle class people live way above their means. You know, there's a middle class people are the most likely group to live way above their means. And part of that is the pressure, you know, part of that is some of that pressure. It's like if you spend time with somebody who makes a lot of money or comes from money and they want to go do fancy things, you're going to have to spend a significantly higher percentage of your own money to do that or let them pay. And to be honest, it's humiliating. I felt a little bit humiliated when that girl was paying for my expensive steak, even though she wanted to do it and she insisted and it was sweet. And it really has nothing to do with some macho, oh, the man should pay. I don't, I don't even actually believe that. I don't even believe in the whole, the man should pay. I don't, I don't necessarily buy into that. It's nice. It feels good to do it, though. Like, I will say that I don't believe that a man has to pay. But when I've been in a committed relationship in particular... I enjoy being the one to pick up the tab. Like I had a girlfriend where I made a lot more money than she did at one point and I would enjoy picking up the tab. And that was a lesson for me because I learned too, because there was like, there were times where I would get drunk and I would be like, Hey, how about you pick up the tab this time? I bought you 33 dinners. I said that once to her. And I was, the thing is I was joking. It was a flippant joke. I said, I I bought you 33 dinners and it was, which is a completely random number I made up. I was like, hey, no, it wasn't even dinner. I asked her to buy me a drink. Like she was getting up to buy a drink. I said, how about you buy me a drink? I bought you 33 dinners. You could at least buy me a drink. And I realized now that was really trashy of me. Even though in my mind it was just comedy, drunken comedy, I, I look back on that. I mean, I cringe because she was upset by it. And she had reason to be. It was, it was just weird. It was a weird thing for me to say, but 
I was having fun. I do enjoy, and it made it sound, what sucks about that, I guess I'm going off on a whole different direction here, but what sucked about that was that I didn't mean it. And it, and it made it seem like that I'm buying her dinner to, for some manipulative reason, which I'm not, which I wasn't. But because I made that joke, it kind of framed me taking her out to eat and picking up the tab as some kind of like using that as a tool to manipulate her to do things for me or something. You know what I mean? Like, how about you buy me a drink? Because I bought you so many 33 dinners. I buy you 33 dinners a night. The least you could do is go buy me a freaking whiskey, huh? Um, just it's, it's stupid to do that, no matter what my intention was. But anyway, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't believe that the man has to, but it feels good to do it. But there was a girl that I was involved with. And I kind of, you know, I don't, I don't know. I didn't, I, didn't, I, I didn't have a feel for her family background completely. Like I knew she came from at least a middle class background and she was educated and her family was educated. But it wasn't until we got drunk together one night we were just like hanging out in my kitchen, drinking and confessing. And she like confessed and it really came across like a confession. She confessed that she came from old money. Like her family had deep roots in the South and she brought up, or maybe it was Virginia. Either way, it was within the Confederacy and that's relevant to this. But she said she came from old wealth and her family, I'm not going to say her last name, but her name sounded like Old Wealth. It just had one of those, it sounded like some family whose wealth traces back gener- many, many generations. And she was like, yeah, I come from old money. And, you know, my dad, like my dad worked hard because anytime someone comes from money, they always want to emphasize that, you know, oh, but, but I worked hard, but my dad worked hard. And I believe it. You can come from money and you can also work hard to make your own money and all that. Um. But she she first confessed that she came from old money, but I could kind of tell that there was another shoe. I could kind of tell that that was the first shoe and that another shoe was going to drop. Like I could just, I could I kind of tell like it was she said it like she was getting something off her chest and she was part of this. I mean, she was she was the first person who ever told me what a microaggression is. This is 2011. And she was the first person to ever tell me what a microaggression is. Like one of her she was so proud because like at her liberal arts college they had sent her to like some college in the Midwest or East coast for this summer program. And it was called the white privilege conference. And she told me all about it. And I was already what I am now. Like, I want to make that clear that like 2003, 2004 is around the time that I completely distanced myself from the left. I, I wasn't necessarily outspoken about it, but I was done. And, uh, but people didn't necessarily know that. But so in 2011, I was already, you know, I was everything that I say on this show, I similarly felt in 2011, not that I haven't changed, not that I'm unwilling to change, but as far as my attitude toward all that social justice stuff goes, at least the way that they handle it, at least the way that they frame it, my attitude was the same then as it is now. And so, but I listened, you know, I, I respectfully listened to her 
stories about like what an honor it was to go to the white privilege conference. It was literally called the white privilege conference. I'm sure you could look it up. I've never looked it up, but I, I take her word on it. And so she was this young white girl chosen to go to the white privilege con, uh, <laughs> contest. That's, that's probably really what it is, right? A contest who can, who can be the most virtuous, but I think she really thought she was helping and maybe she was, maybe I just don't know. But she told me like, she's like, yeah, they, they had these seminars and classes at the white privilege conference. One of them was about interracial porn. And I'm like, life is just so surreal. Your college flew you out to go to something called the white privilege conference. And you're watching a seminar examining the politics of interracial porn. There are a lot of politics to that. I'm not saying there aren't. I'm not saying it's not worth, worthy of analysis, but it was just like, wow. But then one time, you know, I hesitate to say this, but like one time we were in bed just laying there, like, I mean, you know, twiddling our thumbs, but it was like uh, late at night and, and she was really into like pillow talk confessions or something. But she, she like, she said to me, she was like, you know what though? She's like, I'm not attracted to black men. And I said, eh, so? Like, you don't, you don't have to be. <laughs> but she said it like it was because she had gone to this white privilege conference and she was obviously all already. I mean, she taught me what a microaggression was in 2011. I had never heard of it before. And that, would just, that was just the crest of a much larger wave of things to come. So she was, she was what would now be called woke. And, and she was proud of it. But she confessed to me in bed. She was like, I'm just, I got to be honest. Like, I'm, I'm just not attracted to black men. And I was like, eh, what do you want me to say? I'm not going to go high five. But I'm also not going to be like, shame on you. It's like, whatever, you like what you like. I'm not attracted to black men either. <laughs> we have something in common. You know, but you could tell it was like this dirty, dark secret to her. And good for her for confessing that. I mean, she was being honest and it didn't come from any bigoted place. But anyway, uh, she she confessed something else, which was like she came from old money. She was telling me in the kitchen she came from old money. But I could kind of tell there was there was kind of a pregnant pause afterward. And I was like, cool, you come from money. She's like, yeah, my family, we, they, you know, they go back deep in the South and generations of money. And then, you know, she took a couple more sips of wine and then she's like, and they were actually part of the Confederacy. They were supporters of the Confederacy during the Civil War. And I was like, well, now that's interesting. Now that's interesting. She didn't go into detail, though. She was incredibly ashamed of it. And I'm not saying she should have been proud of it, but it was just, you can tell people have these, uh, they're twisted up inside about who they are and where they come from. And it's like, that doesn't mean that you're part of the Confederacy. You got, you, you went to the white privilege conference, but you can also see where she's probably overcompensating. And, you know, I'm, I'm making a jump here. I don't want to assume I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to get psych 101 about it, but it's like, she obviously felt very guilty about the fact that her family were rich southern confederates to what extent they were involved i don't know i mean they were probably the most nefarious people involved because i mean the people that demonize in the confederacy are not the soldiers 
They're not the farmers who took up arms. It's the wealthy people. It's the elites. The people who escalated the Civil War were the elites, as always. And her family, it sounds like, were the elites. So, you know, if you're going to be a little bit ashamed, I guess maybe it's the elites. But I don't think she should be ashamed. It's just a fact. It's just a fact of life. These are your people. Maybe they had reasons for what they did. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't. She didn't really elaborate on who they were or anything. I, I don't think I've ever seen that. Maybe I should look it up. I should look up her last name. I don't know that I ever have with regards to the Confederacy. But she was like, you can't tell anybody that. I was like, okay. And I didn't follow that. I mean, I'm breaking that rule now, 10 years later. But I also broke it one time without thinking, which one time we were at a work party and we were drunk. And I was like, we were talking, we were just, we were just joking around with people. And I was like, well, 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 you, your family goes back to the Civil War. I didn't even say, though, I didn't say like your family were Confederate sympathizers. I just said, well, your family goes back to the Civil War. And she suddenly got really uncomfortable. And that, that's wrong of me. You know, that was wrong of me. Um, I shouldn't have brought it up, but nobody even heard it. That's the thing is like nobody else was even listening. Everybody else, everybody was standing around with coworkers, probably gossiping about work. And just there was something relevant, like people were talking about history or something where I was like, well, well, I'm sitting here with a, you know, your family goes back to the Civil War. And she got she froze up. That wasn't very cool of me. Especially because I'd, I'd forgotten that she asked me to never bring it up. But to me, that's fascinating. And you shouldn't be ashamed of that. You know, you shouldn't be ashamed of, you know, if you fought for the Union. Shouldn't be ashamed of that either. Like, if you're with a bunch of Southerners, like, if you're, if you're with a bunch of Confederate flag-wearing Southerners, I equally think you should be able to mention if your family was involved with the Union. People should be willing to accept that, especially hundreds of years later. But that always fascinated me, though, like the need to confess that her family was involved in something. It's like you're going to be in for a real shock when you find out what your entire history of ancestors were involved in. Oh, your wealthy ancestors supported the Confederacy, probably because it was financially and politically advantageous to them. And they were Southerners. They were in Virginia. You're going to be in for a shock when you find out what your caveman ancestor did to somebody. Like my friend Nick said once, my friend uh, Nick, Nick Winzel, my childhood best friend, he said something once and he said, he might have been quoting another friend of his, but I heard it through him. So I'm going to quote the messenger. And he said, there's a rapist in every family tree, at least one rapist, you know, and that's just a simple fact. You know, your bloodline has been around for a long time. The fact that you are here means that you go back to the beginning somehow, some way. Every single one of us goes back to the beginning. And do you know what that means? One, it means we're all connected. The mycelium, the, the human mycelium, we're all connected through that. But it also means you have some bad people in your family tree. It means we all have some bad people. I don't think it could ever be put better than what Nick said, which is there's a rapist in every family tree. There's a confederate in your family tree. I mean, I know somebody, I'm not going to name names because I don't know if she would appreciate this, but I know somebody who 
her biological grandfather was part of the Latvian SS. I don't even think I knew there was a Latvian SS until she told me. And she never knew him. He died in World War II. Um, but still, it's, it's one of those things that you can't tell people that. You know, in the same way that that ex-girlfriend confessed that her family were Confederates. You know, you can't tell somebody, if you tell somebody that your grandfather was in the Latvian SS, that's, you're potentially putting yourself, oh, it's almost like you're in the Latvian SS. It's like you have to apologize for that. I don't even know what the Latvian SS did. I don't even know the extent that they were, were they involved in the final solution? I've never heard about it. They got, I mean, Latvia got taken over. I mean, a lot of people joined Nazi Germany. A lot of people joined the Third Reich by force. A lot of people had to. That's not a justification. It's a fact. But I mean, I guess that gets into Hitler. Why not? You know, I mentioned neo-Nazis last night and I've noticed this phenomenon and it kind of goes hand in hand with this. Where it's like when you bring up Nazi Germany, when you bring up the Third Reich, when you bring up Hitler, you have to denounce them while you do it. And I think the best example of this is not even political. I mean, it is political, but it's not directly political, which is Hitler's art. Everybody knows that Hitler was an artist who tried to get into art school. He's just like you. Just like you, except except the Art Institute, the Seattle or San Francisco Art Institute, they accepted you because they're really looking for your money. And they'll hand out credentials for your money, regardless of whether you actually know how to design a cool logo or not. But anyway, the Vienna Art Institute, or whatever it's called, the Vienna, the Vienna Art School that Hitler tried to go into, rejected him. They rejected him because he couldn't draw people very well. And you see drawings that he did of people, and they're better than anything anybody you've ever known has drawn. But that just shows you the standards of the time. They were looking for realism. But you can also see some in some of Hitler's figure drawings and, and face drawings of face portrait drawings, you can kind of see where it's not perfect. Did you just say that you can kind of see where some of Hitler's drawings aren't perfect? Now, you can see that, but then you can see where his architecture is incredible. Like Hitler's paintings of architecture are incredible. You know, maybe maybe the Vienna School of Art had better architectural painters than him. I'm sure they had the best of the best. But it's interesting that when you even bring up Hitler's art, you have to qualify it or denounce it. Like, for example, like... In almost every single instance I've ever read, every single article, every single reference to Hitler's art that I've read, they always de- describe him as a failed artist. And they'll even apply that to the art itself. Like, for example, a few years ago, it might have been, I don't when was it? It was sometime in the, in the 2010s. It might even have been more recently. But this guy in Italy did an art show that was called Madness and Art. Oh, dude, that's such an original. Oh, did you know artists are crazy? There was a class in my in my college called Madness and Creativity. I mean, the problem with that, just to go on a quick tangent, the problem with that is it's true. A lot of artists are madmen. A lot of artists are out there. A lot of them are crazy, crazy. But because we know that now, because we know that 
there is an archetype of the crazy artist. Now people who aren't crazy and want to be artists try to use that. I've known them. Maybe I've even been that person at certain times in my life. But where because artists know that being crazy makes you more credible. I mean, it's no different than a middle class person trying to pretend to be poor to give themselves some kind of credibility to either make themselves seem tougher or more authentic. It's the same thing with mental illness and art where a lot of artists will try to act more eccentric than they are, or they'll even try to act crazier than they are because they know that that gives their art more credibility. And you can actually do really shitty art and have people celebrate it if they think you're crazy. And so, yeah, and it, so it's, it's kind of, I don't know, it's old hat to me, like hearing about this art show in Italy where it's like, we're showing the connection between madness and art. It's like, hey, we already know. My college had a class about that. Doesn't mean it's not relevant. I don't know. I'm just being, I'm being a jerk here. But anyway, uh, to me, that's the, the, it's like we've already established that there's a correlation between madness and creativity. So let's, but let's not stop there. Let's go somewhere else with it and not just be like crazy people make art. But anyway, as part of this exhibition, this madness and art exhibition, this Italian curator showed a, a never before seen Hitler painting. And it's a painting of two men standing in, it looks like it's in a court or something. It looks like it's in, or like a, it looks like it's in a government building. It's like this dark mahogany hallway. And these two men, like one man sitting at a desk and one man standing. Like if you go to the Capitol building here, it's kind of similar where you'll go down certain hallways. Like every once in a while, like pre-Coronivai, I would just like take a weed edible and I would go to the Capitol building here and just walk around inside of it because you're allowed to do that. And you'll come across these hallways, though, where there's like there's kind of like a receptionist sitting at a desk. And then there's just like this endlessly long hallway past them. And this Hitler painting looks just like that. So it, it must be some sort of judicial building or or a political building. But it's, it's just and it's, it's not like great. You know, it's just it's just this very dark. It's very brown. And, but the guy who, who, who did the art show, I read an article about the guy who did the art show and he goes, he, he was talking about how he's showing this never before seen Hitler painting. And he goes, it's a piece of shit. That exact phrase. He felt the need to qualify this. Did he do that for the other artists? Cause he was showing like Francis Bacon and some other things too, as part of this exhibition. Like when he, did he say that about the Francis Bacon paintings too? Did he have to say, oh, yeah, we're showing Francis Bacon, but it's a piece of shit. This Francis Bacon painting is a piece of shit. But he had to say it about the Hitler painting. Like the sort of the currency of the exchange of doing something like that is that you have to qualify it. You have to den- not just denounce Hitler. You have to say that his painting sucks. He can't say that, oh, yeah, this is kind of a dark Moreau's painting. I don't necessarily like it. He had to call it a piece of shit. Like it's like, and and, you know, and, and I understand why too, because if you show a Hitler painting in your art exhibition and you don't qualify it, people will be like, Oh, so you're celebrating Hitler. 
You're celebrating Hitler. Oh, so you're a Hitler fan. Because people are that ridiculous. People are that absurd that simply showing a Hitler painting without some sort of disclaimer, without some sort of... uh, Yeah, disclaimer. That's what it is. It's a disclaimer. And I've talked at length. One of the big themes on this dang show that I do is avoiding giving out disclaimers when you don't have to. And people will convince you that you have to. You don't have to. You do not have to give disclaimers about everything that you are interested in. Oh, one of the most famous violent dictators in modern history a man who has replaced Satan and the Antichrist as our go-to epitome of evil. Adolphus Fornicus Hitlerus. We all know who he is. We all know what he did. A small minority of people either deny what he did or celebrate what he did. The vast majority of people know exactly who he is and what he did. Do we need a disclaimer telling us that it's a piece of shit? And are we not allowed to like the painting? Or beyond good, bad, and taste, are we not allowed to find it interesting? Are we not allowed to want it to be presented objectively? Because there's a power to that. There is a power to having Hitler's paintings presented objectively. Because we can simply look at them and we don't have to turn it into a dialogue. And I, you know, as I've explained at length here, you know, another one of the obvious common themes of this show is just that since when do you have to like the artist? Since when do you have to agree with the artist? Whether it's people hating Morrissey for being pro-Brexit, whether it's people being mad at Danzig, you know, these examples I've used recently... In, in recent episodes, you know, people being mad at Morrissey, people being mad at Danzig, people being mad at Jerry Only for being a Trump supporter. Since when do you have to agree with them on that? Since when does your interest, I'm not even talking about good and bad taste. I'm not even talking about things you identify with and you relate to. I'm just talking about your interest. Like, does your interest in art require you to, to agree with it? Does your interest in art require you to find it agreeable to society as a whole or to every group in society? Mine doesn't, and it never has. I, I actually don't. I, I understand the mechanism that makes people do that. I don't understand how you can actually be a human being with taste and interest in the world and need things to be qualified, disclaimed. Because you think about the word disclaimer, we're so caught up in what that means in this legal sense. Oh, I'm watching a movie and there's a disclaimer. Think about the, the root of that, to disclaim something. When you give a disclaimer, you're saying, I'm letting you know that I'm not claiming any support of this. I'm not claiming this as part of me. I am disclaiming this. I am distancing myself from this. And it's not like, I I love context. I don't mind contextualization, but forced contextualization is bullshit. Forced contextualization is bullshit. It is. I hate forced contextualization. But guess what? Art is filled with it. 
I took one art class in college. It was that art philosophy class. There was so much forced contextualization. And an example of that is like we would look at paintings sometimes. Like a lot of what we did was read. Um, we read people like Danto. I think that was his name. Is it, is it Greenberg? We, we read all these names. We read Hegel as part of that class. We read different philosophers. You know, it was... I wish I could have taken that class now because at the time I was just sort of enduring it because it was honestly kind of unbearable. I mean, I met, I met a girlfriend that I ended up having for three years, the longest relationship I've ever, I've ever had. I met her through that class. So there was that, but the class itself, like I wish I could have taken it now as it was then. I mean, by now a class like that's probably worse, but, but anyway, like there was so much forced contextualization where like, Sometimes every once in a while we would have a lecture where the professor would pull up different paintings and we would look at them and they would ask us for feedback. And what you had were students like forcing this context like, oh, well, if you notice the man, if you notice the man is standing up by the river up there and the woman is standing down closer. So it's like we are, are from our point of view as the viewer, we are standing closer to the woman. And the man is farther off, so the artist must have been communicating that we feel a much we, we feel a much warmer gravitational pull toward the woman who's like our mother because we're close because the woman is closer to us in the painting. It means that she's our mother, and that's our father. And maybe that maybe the painter felt a more distant relationship with his father. And it's like, where's a gun when I need one? <laughs> that that stuff drives me insane all this like pseudo symbolism and forced context and and total imaginations going off the rails and if that's how you enjoy art cool i don't i don't look at art that way ever unless it's obvious unless you can't possibly avoid seeing symbolism or context but even then i try to look at it objectively But anyway, there's this need to offer disclaimers when you like something or not even like, because I mean, that's the, that's the most ridiculous thing about, about taste is it's like my taste isn't even defined entirely by whether or not I truly identify with something, relate to it or like it. And the example that I always give, and it's, it's a tired example, but I feel like it's one of the best ones is horror movies. It is completely acceptable. Like, you don't have to give a disclaimer if you're a horror movie fan. Like, maybe if you're surrounded by evangelical Christians, you have to hide it and give a disclaimer because, you know, you have to, it's not just one type of person that requires disclaimers from you. You know, there are, you know, it's like there, there were kids who had to like explain to their Christian parents why they're reading Harry Potter and why it's okay. You know, so all types of groups do this. But with Nazi art in particular, there is a, a zero tolerance policy where you, if you're going to show it, if you're going to show Hitler's art or talk about Hitler's art, you have to disclaim it. And the easiest way to disclaim it is to make petty remarks. Like seriously, like I can't even think of, I can think of very few instances where I saw Hitler's art just presented as it is. 
with no other contextualization. Nobody, because people will read into Hitler's art. You know that example I just gave, like, oh, the woman is closer to the to the viewer, therefore that's our mother, and the man is farther away by the river. And I just made that up, but it sounds a little too real, doesn't it? But it's like people will do that about Hitler's art. They're like, well, you can kind of see, you can kind of tell that he, uh, the fact that he couldn't draw people very well shows you that he didn't understand people, and it shows you that he had this undercurrent of misanthropy. Because Hitler couldn't draw faces very well, it means that he hated people. People will read into it that way, but most of the time it's not, at least that has a degree of sophistication. Most of what I see is they'll say he was a failed artist, which is funny because we love failed artists. Like, as long as somebody isn't Hitler, we love the underdog story. Like, in sports, for example, like one of the most often repeated stories that I heard growing up, the motivational stories was, you know that Michael Jordan didn't make the varsity basketball team his freshman year of high school. And it's, 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 we like those sort of underdog stories, like where if Hitler didn't become the Fuhrer and he did something that people celebrated or he, he became a successful artist later on through his own means not through the Vienna Art School network, but let's say Hitler became a famous artist in his own right later. People would be talking about how he got rejected from art school as a, as a point of pride. They'd be like, this great artist got... Because we like the idea that the institutions just don't understand. Because they usually don't. But we, we love the idea that the institution didn't understand this person's genius. And it makes their story better when we can say... Oh, they thought that he sucked. They they didn't they kicked him out of art school. Oh, they didn't accept him into art school. But because it's Hitler, people use that to try to like say that he was a bad artist. They use that to try to say that like, oh, Hitler's art sucked. See, the Vienna School of Art agreed. And it's like you would be saying the exact opposite thing if that was some if that was like Salvatore Dali or somebody like that, it's like you would be using that to say, see, they just didn't understand. He was an underdog. We love those underdog stories, unless you're Hitler. If you're Hitler, your underdog story is just an excuse to, to mock him and mock him all you want. I couldn't care less if you mock Hitler. I'm just saying, don't be disingenuous and don't lie. And don't give disclaimers. If you're going to show a, an unseen Hitler painting as part of your madness and art exhibition, you don't need to do a press release where you call the art a piece of shit. You don't need to remind people that you don't like Hitler. And if people assume that you are glorifying Hitler, well, they don't understand art. But to go back to the horror movie thing, it's like, Especially on the left, like I know just about everybody I know who's a diehard horror movie fanatic tends to be fairly liberal. And it's readily accepted, like they they never have to justify that. They never have to justify their interest in horror movies, and they shouldn't. But it's interesting to me that you're allowed to kind of have a tongue-in-cheek, flippant attitude about horrific murder and rape and blood and gore. But the second you put a swastika on it, you now have to give a disclaimer. Like the swastika has replaced the pentagram. 
Hitler has replaced Satan, and it's used to represent pure evil. And if you ever do anything to highlight, even if you use that as a theme, I mean, because even people, there, there are bands and stuff that have, obviously there are neo-Nazi bands, and they should be allowed to do that too. I don't see how, I, I don't see how a Nazi theme band is fundamentally different from a death metal band who does horror and gore and, and, you know, all sorts of horrific stuff in their music. I don't see how that's fundamentally different. You know, I, I just don't, but yet people do make that distinction. And death metal bands aren't expected to give disclaimers. Yeah, there's there's people who think that what de- what death metal bands do is bad. Of course, there are people who are opposed to that, but it has far greater acceptance among people who do feel that you need to give disclaimers if you cover like a more controversial subject about something else. And they assume that if you're covering a controversial subject or using controversial imagery, that you are condoning it. That's the jump people make. Like if if you do horror movie themed death metal, people kind of readily understand that you're not condoning that. Even if you speak from the point of view of a killer, which a lot of it does. You know, Cannibal Corpse is one of the most popular death metal bands. Like, if you listen to their lyrics, like, a lot of them are horrific, and they're from the point of view of someone doing those things. But people kind of understand that that's not really them. Although one of the Cannibal Corpse guys turned out to be a psycho recently. I'm trying to remember what he did. Something involving guns. But anyway, just, though, culturally... We accept that. People who accept that are unwilling to accept something else. And even just World War II in general, the second you see even just battle scenes from World War II on an album cover, you start to go, hmm, hmm. They need to denounce this. They need to contextualize this. Otherwise, I might think that they're Nazis. And what's funny about that, the the irony of all that is, you know, one of Hitler's big things was in addition to destroying art, he had touring exhibitions of what he referred to as degenerate art. They were touring exhibitions of paintings and art that they had confiscated to show people examples of degenerate art. And now that's what people are doing with Hitler's paintings. Hitler is now a degenerate. And that was the word that he used, whatever it translates to in German. He used the term degenerate art to refer to modern art, abstract art, Jewish art that he didn't like. And what's hilarious about that now is that's exactly what people are doing with Hitler's art. When they do show it, they have to tell people, oh, just so you know, this is an example of degenerate art. Oh, see this beautiful painting of a castle in the Bavarian mountains that Hitler did? It's degenerate art, because Hitler did it. Which gets into a whole other dilemma, which is like, is something degenerate art because of the person who made it, regardless of the subject matter? Or is it degenerate art because of the style and content of the art? In Hitler's case, he was saying the actual style of art and the people making it are degenerates. But what's interesting is now that Hitler is part of these degenerate art exhibitions, the idea is that the subject matter is inherently degenerate because Hitler did it. 
even though it's just a beautiful painting of a Bavarian castle. So kind of funny how that works, how now people are doing to him what he was doing then. And I'm not using that. One of the lowest and worst arguments that people on the right use is you're saying that I'm a Nazi. You're more like a Nazi. To me, don't even go there. Don't play that game with people. I've criticized that on here before about how the reactionary right has this tendency to go, oh, you did that. You said that I'm this, but I think you're that. I know, I know you are, but what am I? You know, I, I hate that argument. So I'm not trying to make that argument here that it's like, because people have to give disclaimers and denounce Hitler's art in order to discuss it and show it today, they're just like Hitler. I'm not saying that, but I am saying it's kind of a funny irony that they're doing exactly what he did with regards to art. And they're not just doing it with Hitler's art. I mean, that's now what we're seeing with the mass censorship. Like when Discogs bans certain records from being sold, when eBay bans certain records from being sold, when PayPal makes it so that certain distributors can no longer sell certain records, what they're saying is this is degenerate art and it shouldn't be allowed to exist. And so in that way, they are being like the Nazis. I just don't choose that argument. I choose to just call it exactly what it is using our current points of reference. Because guess what? We have plenty of other points of reference to use other than Hitler and Germany. We can talk about things. We can talk about politics. We can talk about culture. We can talk about art without needing to use the Third Reich and World War II as our only example. It's the only thing that ever happened in history. You know, I've talked about how people's brains reset in 2016, where there's a lot of people that I personally know and their memory of culture and politics before 2016 seems to have been wiped. They don't remember anything that was building up. Like they remember that Obama was the president, but they don't remember any of the cultural tension they don't remember any of the events. They don't remember any. They don't remember what was going on at all, let alone even further back. But you think of World War II, people's brains reset at that moment. And of course they did. But still, it's like we, we can use other examples. And the most embarrassing thing to witness is... Somebody on the left and somebody on the right, both pointing fingers at each other, calling each other Hitler. But what's funny is you can see where like, because I follow some kind of reactionary people online. I agree with some of what they say. I disagree with, with other stuff. I don't need to give a disclaimer. I can, I can pay attention to whatever I want to pay attention to. I can find anything interesting that I find interesting because I'm honest with myself. But I pay attention to some reactionary right-wing people. Just Here's a disclaimer. I pay attention to people on the left, too. Oh, boy. I'm so well-balanced. Who cares? Who cares what I pay attention to? But anyway, there's people on the reactionary right who... They kind of fall into that new Catholic zone that I sometimes talk about on here. And it's funny because they start, like, saying, like, that's satanic art. And these are people who were, like, atheists listening to... You know, these people were like 10 years ago, these people were like atheists on Reddit, you know, talking about, 
fallout boy or something. I don't know. That's just a bad example. But, uh, now they're like, I'm a Catholic now. And I think satanic art should be outlawed. And it's like, Oh, you're just, Oh, you, you, you've just gone full circle. You've just become the thing you hate. Like, I don't think it's wrong to use, I think Satanism and evil, I, I would rather use those because they're not associated with a specific person or a specific time. And they, those terms can kind of adapt to different situations and scenarios a little better than using this one historical example of atrocity. But anyway, like I'll pay attention to those people and like they've kind of gotten to this mode where now they're the ones being like, look at all this degenerate art. Oh, my God. Did you see this? This famous person had a pentagram on their shirt. And like when I see that, it's not like I'm not like, oh, God, like degenerate art. Oh, my God. Lady Gaga had a had a inverted cross on her shirt, which I don't know if that's ever happened, but people react to things like that. And for me, that's not the issue isn't that she's representing the Antichrist. Someone's going to listen to this and think that Lady Gaga really did wear an inverted cross. But, you know, you see, I mean, a good example is when that guy, there's like a a gay black rapper who I'd never heard of, who was a big deal a couple months ago because like he did something where like he, he basically did like satanic rap and he made some shoe that's like made with the blood of people. It's like some satanic shoe that he made. which is like, come on, does this matter one way or another? It's stupid. If you like it, it's stupid. If you don't like it. And then he like, he did some sort of performance. Maybe it was a music video where it was like the devil was effing him in the a and people made this big deal about it. Like all these reactionary right people who like came from 4chan are upset about it. It's like, oh my God, can you believe that he's he's just using satanic imagery this freely? Oh my God, this just, our culture's declining. Oh, it's degenerate art. It's like, you're just becoming the thing you hate. Just ignore it. Because when I see that stuff, I'm just like, this just shows you that any and all potency that satanic, that satanic imagery had is gone. And I've never been that into Satanism. You know, I've never really been that into satanic imagery. Even when I was like, you know, first getting into black metal, first, you know, growing up being into Danzig. I've always had satanic music in my life, but I myself never identified with that. I never identified with pentagrams. Like when I was buying band shirts of metal bands growing up, I would, I typically wouldn't gravitate toward the pentagram. I mean, I have a shirt by a band that I've had for years and it has like Jesus on the cross getting stabbed by demons in his rib cage. And I don't really wear it anymore. I never really felt like I wanted to go out. Like, it's not that I'm worried about offending people. It's not that I'm worried about being blasphemous, but I'm just kind of at a point in my life where I'm just like, I don't, do I really need to wear a shirt with Jesus getting abused by demons? I, I don't think so, but it has nothing to do with whether it's like appropriate or polite or spiritually sound but you can see where people like people, there's a need to identify some art as degenerate and they're doing it now in droves. 
And that's what this whole censorship thing is. That's what all of this censorship is. In the Third Reich, degenerate art and literature had a very specific meaning. And in today's world, degenerate art and literature has a very specific meaning. And it's always used to censor. It's always used to eliminate it. And if you do address it, you have to, you have to give a disclaimer. And all that stuff too comes like, cause you'll even see it too. Like I know that book, the Turner diaries, I've never read it, but the Turner diaries is like famous white supremacist literature. And, uh, I know that like the rights to that book were purchased by some sort of activist organization, you know, anti-racist activist organization. And now when they publish that book, or at least this is like, this is years ago, this is like probably 2005 that I remember coming across this, like the intro to the book is a disclaimer. It's like, it's like a, it's explaining why it's bad, but I'm like, do you even need to do that? Like, do you need to explain why the Turner diaries is bad? I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying, do you need to, do you always have to give a disclaimer? If you're going to talk about Hitler's art, do you have to give a disclaimer? And what if you like it? What then? I'm fairly indifferent to it. I've seen a couple things from Hitler where I'm like, that's really cool. That's really beautiful. <laughs> I've seen a couple things from Hitler and I'm like, that's pretty cool. No, but it's one of those things where like, what if you actually like it? What now? Do you lie to yourself? Do you lie to other people? There's no reason to broadcast it. Because that's the other side of the coin is there's a certain sort of person who either wants to be edgy Maybe they're a white supremacist and they see Hitler's art and they go, this is the best art ever. Oh my God, Hitler was the best artist ever. And it's like, eh, let's not go there with it either. You're doing exactly what they did. You're reacting to other people. That isn't your taste. Like if you're going out there saying like Hitler was the best painter ever, best painter ever. You know, if you're going out and you're doing that, you're not being honest either. Not to say there isn't someone out there who Hitler's art speaks to, you know, and that it just happened to be just they just happened to find art, Hitler's art the best they've ever come across. You know, maybe that person exists and they are being honest, but it's very easy to take that opposite approach where now you're thinking like, I'm going I'm, to that's reactionary. Uh, I mean, that's reactionary behavior to a T is being like, oh yeah, you all you all give disclaimers and say that Hitler's art sucks. Well, I'm going to tell you that it's the best ever. It's the best ever. You know, so you're doing the same thing when you do that. And I think it's equally disgusting to to lie just on a level of honesty. It has nothing to do with whether you want to get let's get rid of Hitler and just say it could be anybody where you're having this manufactured politicized response to something that can and should be viewed objectively. And people like that don't do any favors to people like me who think that we need settings where we can present these objectively. Because it's not that I feel that people shouldn't be allowed to discuss them. I'm not, I'm not saying people shouldn't be allowed to call a Hitler painting a piece of shit. Of course, please. I want you to have that right. I don't want it to be mandatory. It should not be mandatory. And you see that with musicians too. Like there are certain musicians where people will say, I know, I know that he's problematic, but 
I know that I know that he's a bad guy, but I mean, I don't want you to have to do that about Chris Brown. Chris Brown's a woman beater. I don't want you to have to give a disclaimer if you like Chris Brown's music. It's the same thing. Chris Brown and Hitler. No, but I don't want you to have to... I don't want that to be mandatory for any art. I don't want disclaimers. I don't want qualification to be mandatory. I want you to be able to do that if you want to. I want you to be able to criticize Hitler's art. I want you to be able to have your weird little school lectures where you all raise your hands and you contextualize art in these obnoxious ways that make my blood boil. I want you to be able to do that. Like when I was sitting there in that art philosophy class, listening to people lie about what they saw in this painting, it made my blood boil. And that's personal. Somebody else couldn't care less. Someone could be like, oh yeah, you know what? They had kids starving in Ethiopia. Do you think that those kids who are starving in Ethiopia who have to eat animal dung just because it has some small trace of nutrients, like, do you think they care whether or not someone uh, is it has some analysis of the symbolism of Monet? You know, it's like, of course not. You can You can make that argument about anything. But me being me in the life I live, in the culture I live in, it, 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 it's a personal pet peeve, and I recognize it as such. It's not important. It's not important. Like, I would never, if I was a dictator, maybe, you know, and I, and I was, un, if I was an unhinged dictator, maybe I would become an, maybe, maybe, maybe I would become an artist. Maybe that's pretty much what Hitler did. But um, maybe I would say, we, no college classrooms will be allowed to analyze art in this way. And it all traces back to my experience listening to people lie their asses off about what they see in a painting. You know, maybe if I was a ruthless dictator, I would try to enforce that. But the reality is I'm not. The only dick I got is my dicky. So I'm not trying to tell anybody what to do. It still makes my blood boil. But I'm not trying to tell people not to do it. I want people to be able to do that. I want people to be able to look at art and think and say whatever they want about it. I just don't want it to be mandatory. Because the opposite becomes true, too, where it's like if somebody is saying or doing the right thing, like every once in a while, like someone will release a song or an album or they'll they'll produce art that is communicating something that the the mainstream culture considers virtuous and people fawn over it. And to me, that's the same thing. It's just the opposite side where it's just, oh, you know, because this is saying something virtuous, I have to prop it up. You know, I don't want to have to do that one way or another. But, you know, just going back to a comment I made a second ago about like, Hitler becoming an artist through his dictatorship, through his authority. Not that I view what Hitler did as a politician to be art. There's someone out there who believes that. There's someone out there who's like, oh, you know, the final solution was art. There's some psycho who believes that. But what I mean is that when Hitler, and this started early on, 
when he became the chancellor and all that, he immediately, like one of his main priorities was immediately redecorating Germany. He was obsessed with architecture and aesthetics. And while he may have failed out of, or he may have been rejected from art school, he enforced his aesthetic, not just on a single country, on an entire region. Hitler was very hands-on with regards to the aesthetics of his party. And it goes back even before he was the chancellor, where there's even stories about when when the Nazi party first established the Brown House. It's called the Brown House. It was their first headquarters in Munich. And it was this this big old building before they were in power, but when they were just rising up as a, a force to be reckoned with. They had the brown house and like one of the first things Hitler did is very hands on decorating. He was very it was very important for him that the brown house be decorated according to his aesthetic preference. And you can see, too, where like the Nazi party has some interesting people show up as high ranking members like uh, Heydrich. Is that his name? Heydrich. Reinhold Heydrich, I think is his name, where he's the guy, like everybody knows his face. He's the tall guy with the thin face, the head of the SS, one of the heads of the SS, you know, under Himmler. And uh, I feel like I'm getting his name wrong, but Heydrich, I think it's Heydrich. Oh my God, you got it wrong. But no, he, uh, his father was an opera singer and opera composer who ran a conservatory in his hometown and Heydrich was going to be that he was going to become like he was he was apparently gifted musically gifted oh but it sucks because he's Heydrich he must it must have sucked no but apparently Heydrich he came from this musical operatic family his father was this esteemed figure in opera and Heydrich was going to go into that because he himself was a musician. But the crash after World War I completely ruined his family's wealth. And so he basically was forced to become a soldier. And you can see where that probably in the, in the same way that Hitler getting rejected from art school, because I mean, even Hitler's best friend is what people say is his only friend. That guy, his name was like August something, Hitler's childhood friend. Like that guy said in his book, Hitler's friend said uh, he believes if Hitler had gotten accepted to art school, he never would have pursued politics. He never would have become the Fuhrer. He never would have been the Hitler that we know. We probably would have never heard of him. You know, who knows? It's a woulda. It's it's a, you know, who knows? It didn't happen that way. So who knows? Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Oh, it's all it's it's the Vienna art school's fault for not accepting him. If the Vienna Art School hadn't had, had accept, if they had accepted Hitler, they would have saved twelve million lives. It's like saying, like, oh, if Elliot Roger, who shot up all those people in Santa Barbara, if girls had just liked him, he never would have done it. You know, you know, that's a silly logic, but you know, you can see where that is a theme. You know, where. With Heydrich, it's like Heydrich was planning on becoming an opera composer like his father, and he came from an upper class. It's an upper class background. But because of the devastation of, of Germany after World War I, he ended up getting involved with 
He became a soldier. He became he got, he got hooked up with the Nazi party. And he you know, and he probably gravitated toward him because of the aesthetics, because he was an artist who was never able to follow his original plan. I mean, you know, Anton LaVey talked about this. Speaking of Satanism, Anton LaVey's talked about this very intelligently, I might add, about how the role of music in the Third Reich, where Anton LaVey talked about how some of the power, the, the momentum that went into the Third Reich, that went into the rise of the Nazi party, came through the music they used. And he learned how to play it. Anton LaVey learned some of these songs, these anthems. And he talked about how like, it contrasted with the music that was popular in Germany at that time. He talked about how like, the music that was popular in Germany prior to Hitler's rise to power was kind of morose, kind of boring. It didn't excite people. And it probably reflected the circumstance. It probably, re- it probably reflected the post-World War I depression and misery of Germany at that time. And, he, and Anton LaVey talked about learning how to play those songs on organ and how they're just these triumphant, bright, moment, you know, they build momentum in a person. And so the fact that like a guy who was not able to live out his dream as an opera composer ended up being a top leader of the SS and like, and Heydrich, like he's the guy who people can like straight up just say like he was directly involved in the most horrific aspects of the third Reich. He was regarded as one of the most sinister and sociopathic leaders. Cause some of them, you know, there, there's, there, there were leaders of the third Reich. Like we have this assumption that they all knew what was going on. I mean, there's guys like Martin Luther who, even when the final solution was being carried out, apparently Martin Luther thought that they were simply extraditing Jews to Russia because that was the original plan. The original plan was apparently they were willing to kill Jews and they were killing Jews, but the original plan was not the final solution. And I mean, historians have looked into this pretty objectively and they found no evidence that the final solution was even a plan at all in the 1930s. It wasn't until 1941 that apparently the final solution, the system was developed, the idea was put into place, and they acted quickly. But Martin Luther, apparently, he was in the dark. And, you know, they were very secretive about what was going on with the final solution. But uh, apparently there were guys, there were top Third Reich figures who were not included, which makes sense because people have different roles. People have different dispositions. But nobody has said that about Heydrich. Heydrich was directly involved in all of the horrors that we associate with Nazi Germany. Yet he was, he was, this, he was himself an aspiring artist at one point, which is interesting. And Martin Luther, like speaking of Martin Luther, apparently he was, he was an interior decorator. And Hitler loved interior decorating, too. And so you can see where art manifested. Because, I mean, you can't separate art from government. You can't separate art from culture. You take it for granted, and you no longer see it as art, but it's art. And you can see that today. You can see where, like, like I am not a fan of the art of the current political leadership in the United States. 
It it looks to me like a child doing graffiti. It might as well be Banksy. Like the aesthetic of our leadership in the United States today, to me, it's like an even shittier Banksy. You know, that's pretty much what I see. But that's because somebody wanted that. That's because that's the aesthetic that somebody wanted, whether it was their own personal taste or a message they're trying to send. You, know, you can see where you can't separate art from politics. And so while you know Hitler didn't become a famous painter like he wanted to be, he imposed his aesthetic on an entire part of the world. And if you've seen his sketchbook, it's like you could say like, oh, he was because, you know, you think about a lot of politicians, they're not artistic at all. They hire some guy to make designs for them. And, you know, the Third Reich did that as well. But Hitler had a sketchbook and in Hitler's sketchbook, you can see where he was sketching architecture. He was sketching symbols like when he was trying to come up with a design for the swastika. He was sketching that himself. The guy who is running Germany. The guy who is pulling Austria into Germany. The guy who is planning to invade Poland. He's also sitting there in his study, sketching swastikas, trying to decide what the perfect design is. He's sketching arches, pillars. You know, so it's like he incorporated his art. You know, instead of becoming some obscure painter... He imposed his art on the entire world. And you can see that today. It's not just the fact that he designed architecture and insignias during a 10-year period in the 1930s and 1940s. It's not just that. It's that today, that aesthetic lives on. And there are people who are into it. There are people who like Nazi imagery who don't like the values of Nazism. There are people who recognize the power of that imagery. Some of them objectively, because, I mean, that's how I look at it. Like when you distance yourself from who the Third Reich was and you even just look at the aesthetics of the the Third Reich objectively, you recognize the power of it. And because today all of those symbols are our definition of evil because all of those symbols, because all of those visuals, they define evil to us in a modern Western context. It's hard to look at them objectively. And I'm not saying you even should those symbols, Cause I mean, that, that's, that's to me, cause it, that's different than Hitler's art, even though that is also Hitler's art, but you can look at the aesthetics of the third Reich and you truly can't separate it from the politics. It's much more difficult to look at it objectively. Whereas with Hitler's personal art from when he was younger, you can look at that more objectively because he wasn't painting these paintings to be used as the, um, the decals of a political and social movement that started a war. It killed a lot of people. Um, 
you know, so I, I can understand not being able to separate the politics from the aesthetics of Nazi Germany, but it's a worthwhile exercise to try. And you can see where people rip it off. The number of people who subtly rip off Nazi imagery, just enough to where nobody can call them out, but enough to where they kind of use the power of it. That's an interesting thing to observe. And, and I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. In fact, you know, go for it. But it is interesting to kind of observe that. But I don't think there's any denying that Hitler took his artistic impulse and he channeled it through political power, cultural power. It would have been interesting on an aesthetic level to see what he would have done. Given we only have this small window of time where the Third Reich was in power and actually imposing their art and imposing their aesthetics on everything, it would have been interesting to see how that would have mutated, because it would have. It would have mutated into something else, as everything does. So I wonder what it would have been like. Like, let's say that the Third Reich had established power and they were still in power today. not killing people. They were just another world government. Like, or maybe they were, you know, what, regardless of what they're doing or not doing, just imagine if we never had World War II and the Nazi party was kind of viewed in America the same way we view the Chinese CCP today. Like imagine, it's like, oh, Germany has this government we don't like and this system that we don't like. It'd be interesting to see, though, how that how the Nazi aesthetic would have interacted with modernity. What would that have looked like? How would they have been affected by globalism and commercialism? And I don't know, I mean, like, because we can see the way China looks, but China's different. China borrowed the aesthetics of the Soviet Union, which are powerful too. Because, I mean, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about here, where, like, Soviet aesthetics are beautiful. Even though they're the, like, even just think about the architectural aesthetics. I love looking at pictures of some of those crazy, brutal, what's it called? Is it brutism? I'm not, I'm not good with that stuff. I don't know the isms. Brutalism, brutalism, uh, but you can see where like some of these brutalist sculptures and buildings, while there's something kind of, there's something that kind of, what's the word I'm looking for here? Dis, not disheartening. I don't know. I should find a better way to say it. Um, there's something about Soviet architecture that is off-putting but it's interesting and you're drawn to it. And I wouldn't want to live in a culture where I'm surrounded by Soviet architecture, although it's much preferable to what we're seeing in America today. I would much rather see any Soviet architecture over what I see in my own town, over the sort of buildings they're, they're making here. But there is something about it that it kind of, you look at it and you're kind of like, it gives me kind of a bad feeling. But that's why I like art. I like things that give me a bad feeling sometimes. I like Soviet architecture. I like Soviet art. I'm not one of these people who wants Soviet art hanging in my house. 
But there is a beauty to even just communist propaganda. Do I have to denounce communist propaganda? Do I, if I want to say that a communist propaganda poster from the period where Stalin was killing people in droves, starving people, do I need to give a disclaimer? Interestingly, in our society today, you don't. You don't have to give a disclaimer to tell somebody that you appreciate Soviet-era propaganda. But yet you do if it's Nazi propaganda. That's an interesting... You can read into that however you want. I'm not going to do... I'm not going to go too far into it because I think it speaks for itself. But it is interesting that you are... There's a mandatory disclaimer... If you are to express even an objective interest in Nazi imagery. But there is no, you are not mandated to do the same thing in our culture today if you're saying, oh, look at this Soviet art. And there are people who would make you do that, and I don't like those people either. Those are those exact sort of like new right wing, like people who found the right, people who found conservatism through the alt right. And have become Christians in the last few years and are, are suddenly these just like reactionaries talking about evil. Th- some of those people would tell you, eh, you, sh- you shouldn't uh, you, sh- you shouldn't look at Soviet art. It's degenerate. And it's like you're just the same as those other people. I can look at Soviet art. I can look at Nazi art and I can appreciate it or I can I don't even have to appreciate it. I can simply be interested in it. Because what is interest? What is being interested in something? It is not being bored by it. It is wanting to look at it. People have no idea what it means to be interested in something anymore. They think that being interested in something means endorsing it, relating to it, identifying with it. What sort of mutant brain do you have where you can't just simply... Be like, oh, that is interesting, so I'm going to pay attention to it. That's all it is. There's nothing more and nothing less than that. Being interested in something is just, hey, that catches my interest. And there's actually no simpler way to put it. There's no way to even explain it. Because it is as simple as being interested. And I don't know about you, but I don't choose my interests. I never have. Not that there isn't a degree of choice involved, but I've never chosen my interests. And as a result, I feel no need to give a disclaimer. Born this way. As far as my interests go, born this way. We're willing to say, oh, people are born this way and that way, so don't question it. But you're also born with a certain disposition that you, you find certain things interesting that other people might not. And part of life is navigating the politics of that. The interpersonal politics of I like something that somebody else doesn't. And they feel strongly about it and I feel strongly about it. They think it's degenerate. I don't. I'm just interested.
This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children